year this album came out, Nancy Kerrigan was kneecapped by her skating rival, Tanya Harding. Orenthal James Simpson led police on a leisurely driving tour of beautiful LA. And a nerd named Jeff founded an online bookstore called Amazon. Speaking of interesting things, the Allied occupation of Germany ended 50 years after we'd occupied it, and Sony changed the video game world when they launched the PlayStation 1. Dear listeners, 1994 was the year my family packed up everything they owned and moved from Reno, Nevada to San Antonio, Texas. The decision was easy when her employer said you could go to San Antonio, St. Louis, or be unemployed. And if the year 1994 couldn't get any more crazy, this week's artist Joe Diffie dropped today's album on us. That's right, listeners. We get to dive into 1994's Third Rock from the Sun today on Two Dudes and Tunes. Folks, I am Wood Johnson. I am excited to be here with you today on Two Dudes and Tunes. I am one of the dudes, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, the other dude, Chris Robinson. Chris, how's it going today? It's going pretty great. Uh, you know, it's funny. We've been doing this thing for a few, uh, quite a few weeks now, and I uh, had a funny podcast-related interaction with my landlord. So, he lives a few blocks down from us and um, today is the first of the month. And so I texted him and I was like, Hey, is it all right if I just run the rent check to you real quick, you know, just walk a block or so drop it in his mailbox. And he was like, well, I'm about to go, you know, he was like going to the grocery store or something. And he said, well, I'm about to go out. How about I just pick it up from you? And I told him, okay, just text me when you get in front of our house and I'll come out and give it to you. Because what I don't want is for him to knock on the door and for my (laughs) lovable, but super irritating at times, Cocker Spaniel to start barking his head off. Cause he, he would bark through the whole episode if he gets (laughs) alarmed. Um, He has the, the, the demeanor of like Woody Allen, but more nervous. <laughs> and so well, you better unload that gun then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so I, I told him like, I'll be recorded. I told him that I told him I'll be recording a podcast, just text me or whatever. And I came out and uh, my landlord's a real sweet guy. I was like, Oh, so you're a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> and in my head, I was like, well, I mean, uh, not professionally. <laughs> like it was a really funny. Like, yes, I do this thing, but I do, I don't I don't know if you could call me a podcaster. I I guess I shouldn't be so self-effacing. Like we've been doing this regularly. I look at it the same as being a musician. Yes, I'm a podcaster. I'm just not a professional podcaster. Yeah, have not been paid yet. I've been paid to play music. Oh. Uh, way more times than I've been paid to do podcasting, but it was a really funny, like I, I made sure to not be rude. Cause the last <laughs> thing I want to be is rude. Uh, Cause Chase is a real sweet guy, but it was really funny. I was like, Oh, I, I guess I am. Well, speaking of 
interesting podcast interactions. I talked with a friend of mine from work who found our podcast thanks to your Facebook posting and he reached out to me and said, hey, I've been listening to your podcast and it's not terrible. Oh, it's not terrible. <laughs> glowing, glowing praise. Like, cool. Send us a five-star rating and review. I'd appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter what he thinks, but if he leaves that sweet, sweet five-star review. It's like, please validate that- my efforts. <laughs> I need validation. <laughs> so what else so is I- new with you, man? Well, so I had uh, I had bought this Meerschaum pipe from an antique store in Slayton, Texas. And like at the beginning of February, Megan and I were going kind of stir crazy. So we got out of the house for a little bit and went to Slayton. And um, I kind of just got it on a lark because it was affordable. I don't even remember how much I paid for it. But I thought like, well, why don't I like clean this up? And so I did a little bit of research and stuff and had like, one of the best smokes of my life from this like little rinky dink Meerschaum pipe. It's really fun. It's got like roses carved into the side of it. The bowl is pretty simple, but um, I smoked some tobacco that had just been sitting in a jar. I mean, I've smoked from it now and then, but you were telling me the other day that it actually ages, which I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just gotten to a point where it is like, just perfect so that was like kind of the high point uh last weekend was sitting out on like one of the like four or five days of spring that we get here in lubbock (laughs) and uh partaking that's awesome yeah it's one of my favorite things to do is when you got a quiet minute or half hour and can sit down and really just contemplate uh the ceremony and the ritual of smoking a pipe so that's so great i'm so excited you joined the club (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yes. I've been, I've been a dabbler, but you know, it's hard when you, you know, cause uh, like most young married couples, Megan and I lived in a part in an apartment pretty much up until last year mm-hmm. we started renting this house. And so now I can actually sit on the porch and like Megan and I can have an evening to ourselves without distraction. So That's that awesome. was, it was excellent. How's your week been? Oh, it was great. Um, last weekend, I had a four-day weekend just because of the way I had worked throughout the week. So I had Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday off. And uh, so I got to hang out with Tiffany on uh, uh, Friday and Monday because she works on the weekends. And uh, we ended up in Fredericksburg just kind of on a lark. Uh, we had a, a wine club membership that we needed to pick up our wine delivery for. Uh, up there. And for those of you who don't know, uh, we live about 65 miles away from Fredericksburg, whereas Chris lives like 300 miles away. So it's a much bigger deal for him to go. Like he was there last week. It is for us. It's like, Oh, let's go get lunch in Fredericksburg and we'll take a drive out there. And it's beautiful this time of year, the blue bonnets are out. And so just a really cool drive and kind of, uh, by serendipity, uh, we got up there and my dad called me uh, as we were rolling into Fredericksburg asking which brewery he should eat at in Fredericksburg. And we're like, you're in Fredericksburg? <laughs> well, we're in Fredericksburg. That's and so, fantastic. Uh, so we ended up eating lunch at a brewery called Altstadt, which is my favorite German style brewery in the entire country, just hands down. And so we ate there. We got our wine. Um Got to hang out with my little sister, who I will always call her my little sister, even though she just got her acceptance letter to West Point. 
So man, it's so awesome. Oh, it's so exciting. And so she was, you know, all pumped about that. You know, she just found out about a week ago and uh, it's so exciting to see her, you know, in her case, she's one of those people who starting in about the sixth grade, she started telling my parents, I want to go to West Point. And my parents laid out just this gauntlet of you got to have great grades all throughout high school. You've got to be mm-hmm. a star student athlete. You've got to do all these things that are not in my sister's nature. Like I'm not out of bounds in saying she's not technically the most gifted athlete or the most gifted student. She's a very strong personality and a very strong, you know, emotionally vibrant person. Like I love being around her, but those aren't generally her strong suits. And she has worked hard for the last five and a half, six years, really becoming one of the most disciplined people I have ever seen being a star athlete, being motivated across the board in all of her schools, making honors every year. And uh, so seeing her, you know, receive the the plaque from uh, from West Point that says you're appointed to West Point and the signature of our senator and all that on it is just amazingly awesome. Uh, so we got to hang out with her and celebrate that. And then, of course, we ate pie at the Fredericksburg Pie Company, because if you're up there, you have to eat pie. And Oh, man, uh, we didn't eat any pie. <sighs> You you missed out. We man. got to get back. Down we there. got uh, yeah. We got food poisoning, which I already talked about last <laughs> week. So next time we won't get food poisoning, and we'll get pie. That and then the, exactly, I, the, that's a winner right there. No food poisoning <laughs> and pie, <Just> double wins. <laughs> Such a low bar. <laughs> and then we took the long way back home uh, and drove through a small town called Blanco, Texas and stopped at a distillery that we've mentioned before called Andalusia Whiskey. And uh, I had an old fashioned there to kind of top off the weekend and hit it back at work again. So here we are now. So before we get started, tell me what the appeal is in an old fashioned, because I've had poorly made old fashions and they are sickly sweet and gross. So, a good old fashioned is not supposed to be sickly sweet. It's supposed to, the sweetness is supposed to take the edge off of the whiskey mm-hmm. at the very front end so that you can focus uh, more on the soothing flavors, the, the wood character, the, the aging notes that are in the whiskey, less on the acrid first hit. Um, a good one will have fresh fruit, uh, generally a orange with orange zest and then a spritz of orange oil basically by rubbing rubbing the orange peel around the rim so you get the odor more than you get the flavor of orange. Interesting. Uh, and then like a cherry or something like that. And then two dashes of bitters. Anybody who puts more of that than that in is a loser. And, uh, and gotcha. one king cube. If you can't get one king cube in there, if you're putting a ton of ice in it, just don't make an old-fashioned. You don't want you don't want too much water. The the joy of a big king cube is it's a lot slower melting, so it doesn't water down your drink as fast. Gotcha. Um, so anyhow, that's the passion, and we'll probably end up cutting this in editing because. But he really did. <laughs> that's way too off topic, but it's cool. Oh man! Well, we'll just have to start <laughs> a uh, uh, drinks and smokes podcast. Hey, I'm down. I'll move my recording setup out to my porch, and uh, we'll oh, listen man. to the birds and talk about everything. 
we both definitely had different opinions about this week's album. And so I'm excited to get into it. Are you ready to start? Yeah, let's dive in. All right, Chris. Well, before we talk about Third Rock from the Sun, Joe Diffie's 1994 album, I wanted to talk a little bit about Joe Diffie, the artist and the man a little bit. Um, Most people by now know he passed away of COVID on March 29th of 2020, which is actually, you know, a year plus two days now ago that he passed away. Uh, He grew up in a very musical household. Uh, One of the stories that has been told about him many times over the years is uh, his mom and dad would play instruments and sing. And by the time he was three, he'd learned the basics of how to harmonize with them. So one of the things that he's known musically for are his harmonies. And so it kind of fits that that would be one of his earliest talents. Um, They moved around a lot uh, throughout his formative years, eventually settling in Oklahoma. Uh, In his senior year of high school, he played varsity football, varsity baseball, varsity golf, and varsity track. And he ran all the events in track uh, and was recognized as the Oklahoma male athlete of the year, his senior year of high school. I I was going to say, it sounds like he's the kind of person who's just infuriating to be around because like, not only like there's a guy at my church who is a doctor and not only is he a doctor, but he's a really sweet, charming, intelligent, funny human being. Mm -hmm. And he sings and plays piano and not just like I sing like, for kicks like he sings at church he's got pipes of gold he has this super cool like black corvette that he like (laughs) from the 70s that he works on himself like it sounds like joe diffie is the kind of guy who like can do all those things and more that's so infuriating well let me tell you he dropped out of pre-medical school uh in college because he didn't have the money to pay tuition Oh, no kidding. So he was on a med track uh, and ended up working in oil fields in North and West Texas as a concrete man for a few years before relocating back to Oklahoma, where he worked on the side as a studio musician while working at a foundry. And eventually, through his studio musician time, he ended up opening his own private recordings label and recording studio and renting it out. And in 1986, I believe the foundry that he worked for as a day job ended up going bankrupt and closing down. And shortly after he ended up going bankrupt and having to shut down his studio, his wife at the time uh, divorced him and left him. And so his life kind of played out for a couple of years, kind of as a country song, if you will. Oh, um, no. He slipped into a pit of despair and depression and really didn't know what he was going to do with his life. And there's a there's a really cool bio that he sat down and did a really long form interview uh, about six months before he passed away uh, from COVID, where he talked about this period of his life where he was just in utter despair about what to do and musically he wasn't invigorated he just didn't know what was going to happen and his dad sat him down and said i don't care what you do with your life but you need to set goals and you need to do something towards that goal every day for the rest of your life so what is your goal 
And it was there that Joe Diffie decided that his goal was to be a professional musician. And so every day for the rest of his life, including a story he told numerous times where um, he would, he would fall, was in bed and he was about to fall asleep and he realized he hadn't done something towards his goal of being a professional musician that day. And he got out of bed at, you know, 2 a.m., crawled into his living room and played guitar for 30 minutes to, to say he had done something that day towards being a musician. That is super inspiring. That is so cool. It is really cool. And that dedication uh, brought him out of kind of that pit and he decided he was going to move to Nashville. One day that was his decision of this is what I'm doing to be a professional musician. And he got a job working uh, for Gibson Guitar Corporation, uh, and he worked for them for a couple of years uh, doing uh, office work, basically, uh, and working in one of their shops uh, and decided to start writing music and trying to sell spec scripts for songs to artists so that they could record them. And he made a living that way. when you look up the credits of songs he has either co-written or written over his career since 1987 when he moved to Nashville, there's dozens and dozens of artists from Tim McGraw to uh, Mark Chestnut, just all these huge names. Conway Twitty, I believe, recorded something with him. Um, Just huge names recorded songs written by him. And in 1989, he recorded the backup vocals to one of the songs uh, that was released. And that song ended up winning a Grammy for best single that year. Hmm. And so in 1990, he signed a record deal based on the fact he was the backup vocalist on a song he wrote that won Grammy for best single. And his career was off to the races at that point. He was an entertainer. But one of the things that I want to say about his whole career was that despite the multiple Grammys that he ended up winning, despite the the accolades and the credit and being considered one of country music's big hit makers over the years, uh, his focus was on the fact that country music was way too serious. And he didn't like how, how so self-assured and how confident country music had kind of been over the years. In 1994, the biggest name in country music was a guy named Garth Brooks, who was blowing crap up all over the stage and flying in on wires and doing just crazy shows. And one of his critiques was just how serious country music was. And country music was supposed to be fun and entertaining and something you'd play on your back porch to to get a rise out of somebody uh, that you knew. And so that was what he wanted to produce and the kind of music he wanted to be a part of. So having said all of that, Let's talk about his 1994 album, Third Rock from the Sun. What was your first Jeez, experience you re- with this album? <laughs> well, you really, uh, I, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. Uh, kind of a tough act to follow, given my opinion <laughs> of this week's album. Uh, I was telling you earlier before we started recording, I feel like this episode is going to out me as the curmudgeon. <laughs> because I, I look, I, I did not hate this album, which I know that sounds like damning with faint praise. I don't have as close a relationship with country music as you do. And so I think that a lot of 
what makes his music music charming gets lost in translation for me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, this week, I, just because of life and general busyness, I never sat down and just put the headphones on and listened to the album. I listened to the whole thing in the car and at work and what have you. Um, but I never did sit down with like the headphones I'm wearing right now, which are like super nice and quality (laughs) audio. Um, uh, so I don't know that might've had a little bit to do with it, but this is definitely a, a, a point where your, your taste and mine diverge. I would say even a little bit more so than George Strait. Well, I think that's fair, and I agree uh, that this is very different uh, for both of us, opinion-wise. Um, I was kind of struck. Uh, I feel like last week's episode, uh, Bon Iver's album, which was from your list, was way out of my league. Um, mm-hmm. I even made a comment in my review that I wanted to give it one string at one point in the week and eventually warmed to it and thought through it a little bit more, but... I think it highlights these two albums, you know, uh, for Emma forever ago versus third rock from the sun really illustrate the disparate polar opposites of both of our musical opinions. And most of the time you and I overlap pretty closely. Uh, when I look at the, the list of albums that we have currently, you and I have a lot of albums where I'm like, Oh yeah, that's a great album. That's a great album. And Oh yeah, that's a great album. Or I enjoy that one. But the Bon Iver album and this third rock from the sun album are just at the very outer orbits of both of our opinions. So it's kind of interesting that two weeks in a row, we're both having to stray way outside of our comfort zones to find something we like in two different albums. So kind of serendipity in a way, I guess. Yeah. I, what I worry about is that people are going uh, because, you know, I think about myself too much and I'm maybe a little self-obsessed. I worry like, oh, no, people are going to go like that wood guy sure seems like fun. But that guy, Chris, has a stick up his butt <laughs> <laughs> because if you look at the music, it's like, you know, like. Like one of one of the things uh, just getting into it, one of the things that didn't jive for me with this album was Joe Diffie's sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I'm a fun guy. I listen to Weird Al. Like, I like funny stuff. <laughs> but but for me, the most I could get out... <laughs> Your definition of being fun is you listen to Weird Al? <laughs> How do you do, fellow kids? Uh, is that is that not fun? Are the kids not listening oh to that anymore? I just love that that's the first thing you went to. Like, come on. Well, I, I'm trying to think of musical examples, and he's like the oh, guy. He is. I, he is the I guy. Am, dear, I am white and nerdy. Let's be honest. There is a Weird Al uh, album on my list. So, oh, is there? There I is. Did not, I'm so excited about that. I, you'll have to tell me afterwards which one it is because uh, I don't want to spoil it for the listeners. But greatest you hits, know, baby, double album. No, oh, since I'm the king oh. of double albums. <laughs> oh man, I was gonna get real excited because I love Weird Al. But that that was the thing that made me feel kind of bad. Like the most this album ever elicited 
from me was an internet chuckle. You know, the internet chuckle, you read like a funny tweet or something. And the most you get out of it is like, oh yeah. You know, like we've all been there. And so I, I felt bad and I don't know, like part of it may just be, uh, that I don't know, we're in like a different time. And so the things that were funny when he released this in 94 aren't necessarily funny to me. Um, like the song juniors in love, for instance, uh, the chorus says he'll track her down and then if she should run, he'll bring her home like a deer on the hood, son. And look, I, I, I'm not about to like beat anybody over the head with the moral stick. That's not what I'm here to do. But to me, it was just like, uh, that's kind of in poor taste. Like just to me personally, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to like my intent is not to make anyone feel bad about that because I, I get the humor in it. Mm-hmm. Like the main character of that song is a little dim and can't bear to part with uh, what is her name? Wanda. Yep. Wendy. Yep. Yeah. Wanda. 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 Yep. Um, you know, but it, it's stuff like that, that I would say is probably like to most people is funny or at least to a lot of people. But to me, it just like, Eh. And, I, you know, I wouldn't say it was like outraged or anything. I was just like, eh. you know, and so that's that's one thing that I think was a disconnect for me. Well, and to kind of not to defend that, because I agree things that were funny 30 years ago are not funny anymore in light of events that have transpired since then. Uh, I think that imagery is really evocative of something that almost anybody who really loves country music in general is familiar with. And so it, it goes back to the whole Joe Diffie ethos of I'm going to take country music. And if, if this is country music, I'm going to turn that knob up to 11 and this is country music by Joe Diffie. So how can I take the stereotype and just turn it all the way up to 11 and say, here we go. And that song and Third Rock from the Sun, and Pickup Man, and Good Brown Gravy, and The Cows Came Home. You know, all those, like, really, really fun songs are literally taking every stereotype that is about country music and just turning it all the way up, good or bad, and seeing what pours out. And, you know, some of that stuff, um, you know, uh, some of it I did find humorous uh like when the cows come home he starts off talking about like how great i his always love have is. yeah <laughs> i always am considered you know my wife considers me just a regular don juan in the sack and i am i receive you know delicious breakfast in bed i don't have to butter my toast and then the like punchline is that she left him because the cows came up like that's funny mm-hmm. i'm not completely devoid of a sense of humor it's just i think some of the disconnect for me personally goes with just not growing up with country music because like i you know i like i said I, i'm not interested in doing a bunch of virtue signaling like a deer on the hood. Like if you live in a rural area, you go hunting, 
how are you going to get a deer home? You put it on the hood. Like it's imagery Mm -hmm. that people connect with. And like you said, he's turning the dial up to 11. And I think that just for me personally, I was like, "Eh," like it doesn't hit, you know, because I'm not not country, you know. Well, and, you know, I think the same can be said. Uh, I know you had a lot of issues with kind of the slower ballad type songs, and one of the things I'll say about his ballads is I agree that a lot of the the lyrics just come across as just too much. Um, the idea of turning a fun song up to 11 is just kind of fun and novel to me in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of reviewers for this album claimed uh, that he was just really good at novelty type music. But when you turn the, the dial up to 11 on a ballad or whatever, it just comes across as it just doesn't work like let's not even alliterate anything. It's too much. And I feel, I feel like that's where this album deserves the majority of its criticism. Even in my eye, when I think this is one of the greatest albums ever, uh, the, the ballads are where it loses me a little bit. Yeah. And I, I think my problem with country ballads probably it might even have more to do with instrumentation and the way that pop has kind of, uh, well, or let me say it a different way. The way that country music has adopted pop aesthetics Mm -hmm. does not jive with me because it doesn't sound like country music to me. I think of acoustic guitars or, you know, some really sweet chicken picking guitar, but like the guitar playing in this album is fantastic i really that was the part of this album that i connected with the most um there's a guy playing pedal steel guitar like through a wah pedal Mm -hmm. on love with a capital u and it just rips man that guy is killing it um there's like a really cool solo on good brown gravy uh that's like real like complex chicken picking type stuff it, for i keep saying that for our listeners just to know what chicken picking is you're holding the pick the guitar pick between your thumb and forefinger and then you're picking other notes with the rest of your fingers and so it's kind of reminiscent of what banjo players do or what somebody might do on a finger pick guitar but anyway the point of me explaining that is these are all things that i associate with country music and they're all gone from the ballads mm-hmm and so the ballads come off as I'm trying to think of a good analogy, like, I don't know, like Jim Carrey trying to do serious roles, which he might have some good serious roles out there. I don't know, but it just, it feels weird. Like mm-hmm. you were saying for somebody to try and be funny and turn that like stylistic dial up to 11. Well, and on ballads, another nitpick that I kind of had and it was interesting. Tiffany mentioned this while we were listening to this album this week in the car, uh, just kind of how bipolar the arrangement of this album is. Mm-hmm. Generally, when we're listening to albums, you might have a couple of just like quote bangers at the beginning of the album to get you in the mood of listening to that album, which this yeah. album does a great job starting off like on a mm-hmm. high note, like arguably the best song on this album is track number one as far as just getting you into the album, uh, Third Rock from the Sun. And then they'll have kind of that middle interlude kind of period where the more contemplative music is, and then it'll end on a high note. This Mm -hmm. album is high note, high note, low note, 
high note, low note, low note, high note, high note, low note, high note. Yeah, that's a weird. It's funny you bring that up. I I don't remember if I've mentioned it on the podcast or not, but uh, me and a friend of mine uh, who were in a band, we we didn't coin this term. I'm sure we found it somewhere. But the set sandwich, if you're doing a show, you want to do exactly that. You want to start with the high intensity, high energy stuff, move into your slower tunes in the middle to give people a break and then finish off with a couple like big bangers. But this album does have kind of a weird track list. And I, I, I'm always curious as to what goes into that decision, but that was something that I could see somebody enjoying just that it's broken up a little bit more consistently, but I, it didn't bother me as much as just the ballads themselves, if that makes sense. Well, and a couple of the ballads are definitely the weaker songs on the album, period. Like, even if you just took all the subjective, here's how I feel about it, a couple of those ballads probably shouldn't have made the cut regardless. Yeah, one of the one of the things, and I'm going to bring it up because I thought it was funny and kind of distracted me, is... Um, I forget which track it's on. Maybe uh, that road not taken. He's, he starts off the song by singing, Yesterday I missed my exit on the way to Sears. And that, like, I don't, I don't know if just, like, growing up in the 90s, I have a lot of memories of, like, Sears commercials and going to Sears for, like, getting school clothes and stuff. But it totally pulled me out of the song. I was like, why is this guy singing about Sears? Well, and I think that's an interesting point that you bring up because I've had this thought on a bunch of the albums we've listened to, um, especially when we listen to songs and they instantly just date themselves. So in mm-hmm. 1994, Sears, while in decline, was still the number one retailer in America. Walmart yeah. wasn't there yet. Amazon had literally just been started in a dude's garage I mean, Mm -hmm. Sears was the it factor, and while in decline, it was the name. That would be like you and I singing about Amazon today and then tomorrow Amazon being gone. And the irony of that has kind of hit me in several records. Uh, When we were talking last week about, or two weeks ago, about uh, Stadium Arcadium, that album came out before the iPhone. Think about how much our world has changed since 2007 yeah. when the iPhone launched. And luckily they didn't commit any of the faux pas that like instantly date an album, but country music is generally pretty good about dating itself because it revolves around, you know, stopping at a payphone to make sure uh, your wife knows you're on your way home or whatever. Well, what's a payphone? Mm-hmm. You know, and so yeah. this is just another one of those country music kind of faux pas that just accidentally dates itself that in the moment was great. It worked perfectly like any comedy that was released in the early nineties and had nineties references to 90 pop nineties pop culture. But anybody born after that, who wasn't conscious of that culture in the moment it was released, it's totally lost on. It also doesn't help that for a lot of years, that song, I didn't hear the word Sears. I heard seams 
And so <laughs> for a long time, I always thought the words were yesterday. I missed my exit. It seems. Oh, weird. Which is and totally so now different. Just, yeah. Just completely different song. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's so funny. Yeah. It's, you know, and I, like we've been dumping on his ballads a lot, but I got to say you talking about his early interest in music and learning to sing harmonies as a child really made sense to me because one of the things I actually really kind of liked about this album was Joe Diffie's voice. Like mm-hmm. he, there's, we, I have complained about this before. Um, you know, there's a twang, mm-hmm. there is a generic country music twang that all Nashville artists evidently must adopt if they are to succeed mm-hmm. in country radio. And I don't know what it is about his voice, but combined with his actual skill at singing, I kind of didn't mind it. Like that wasn't the thing that distracted me about this album at all. It was not his voice because his voice is good and he writes good melodies too. So one of my pet peeves with modern radio country is everybody has to sound like a man. Everybody's like got that Luke Bryan thing going on right now. Uh-huh. And yeah. No offense to anybody listening, but I really don't like Luke Bryan as, <laughs> a, as an artist or a performer or anything like he just grates on me, but they all are doing that. Joe Diffie has a very moderate vibrato middle of the road, just kind of, almost something you would hear in a honky tonk in the South by a guy who just loves singing music. And so he's not trying to be anybody else. One of the critiques of Joe Diffie's career is that his earlier albums, people accused him of imitating the singing style of George Jones. And Hmm. I have a hard time reconciling that. Like he must've told somebody in an interview that like he takes a lot of inspiration from George Jones and people just started ripping him on it. Because I feel like his voice, especially by 1994, was incredibly unique. Um, You look at who else was releasing music in the 90s, and he doesn't sound like any of them. You can instantly recognize him by the brand of his voice. And I agree. It's a very strong voice. I enjoy listening to him sing. I am not an expert on (laughs) Joe Diffie. I haven't heard his, like, early work, but... He doesn't sound like George Jones. I don't, you know, that's, that must be one of those things that he, like you said, he probably brought it up once and some of his detractors were like, ah, you're just a George Jones clone or whatever. But (laughs) I, you know, that, that was not what I had a problem with this album for, for sure. He's a fantastic singer. And just briefly to touch on this before we move on to the reviews, uh, I would not say he's my favorite lyricist ever. But, like, these songs all have good structures. They have a good flow. His choruses are really very strong. Um, I've had uh, the chorus for uh, So Help Me Girl stuck in my head on and off the past few days because it's a very, like, poppy kind of modern hook that he writes. Um, You know, he's got skill as far as... Uh, the construction and writing of songs, which makes sense. He's won a Grammy for him and did a ton of work, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, and before we move on to the reviews too, I want to state his music videos are awesome. Like 
They're, so do I need to check out some Joe Diffie will, music videos? I will send you the music video to Third Rock from the Sun. It is entertaining. The music video for Pickup Man is really great. Uh, all of the singles had a music video assigned to them, but just keep in mind, like, they're very 1990s. Like, there's a lot of, like, digital video effects that were way too early and cheesy. <laughs> but they are so much fun. Like, they illustrate the story really, really well. Uh, something weird, a weird phenomena that occurred to me was as I was listening to this, I couldn't help but imagine like the opening credits to Roseanne <laughs> because <laughs> it, 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 I wouldn't say the sound of this album is as dated as other albums that came out around that time, other country albums, but it does feel a little nineties. Like, I think, I think the production is pretty decent overall, but it did like, it kind of felt a little bit like nineties country to me. I would go so far as to say it feels very nineties. Um, when you look at kind of the, the Zenith of Garth Brooks superstardom, it was about 1994, 1995. And I've mentioned in other episodes, I think the George Strait episode, Garth Brooks really changed the trajectory of country music where it had been kind of going horizontally for years. It took a vertical leap by several bounds with Garth Brooks and really took on kind of that more rocky uh, kind of pop inspired, you know, more accessible by the masses with a little bit of steel guitar in it kind of thing that we're still living through today. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at this album, it's kind of at that time where that change is happening. And arguably Joe Diffie is not one of those household names in country music, let alone the, the national Zenith. Um, he had a couple of hits by his name and then a bunch of hits that he helped make throughout the years, but he was more of a, a second rate, you know, a B list actor, if you will, in the grand mm -hmm. scheme of things. And this album sounds like something that somebody was holding on to what was the norm at the time. So it does sound like the nineties. That's a long yeah. way of saying, I'll give you that. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. I appreciate your <laughs> concession. <laughs> this album critically though, did really, really well for Joe Diffie. This album went double platinum. It ended up selling almost 2 million copies. So this was a big, a big deal for him. And, uh, one of the things in his bio on his website he talks about is the first time he got a royalty check for this album and said the first royalty check he ever received for it was more money than he'd ever seen in his life. And <laughs> he was just so excited about that. Like, oh, hey, man. I'm doing something right. Heck yeah. If you're getting royalty checks <laughs> that get that big, you're doing a lot of things right. Or at least the one or two like exactly right things. Critically, um, at this point in time, albums, you know, we don't have a Robert Chris Gow or a, a uh, Rolling Stone article that we can pull up on this. So I kind of took it a little bit different this time. I looked at user reviews from AllMusic, uh, which has an original review written at the time this was released, and then the Amazon overall user rating of this album. Um all music gave this album a 4.5 on its score and its audience score is a 4.25 out of five. Uh, they said that it represents a bit of a musical departure for Joe Diffie, though he keeps his basic honky tonk roots and experience experiments more 
adding more rock flourishes to his sound, and that not all of his attempts are successful, but his ballads are frequently compelling. Nevertheless, it's a little distressing that he only wrote one song on the album. And that was a common criticism of this album. Joe Diffie is famous for writing a lot of spec songs over the years and releasing them as demos to other artists to you know, record and release. And this is an album that uh, I believe the only song he actually wrote by himself was Pickup Man. I could be wrong on that, so don't quote me on it. The rest of them are spec songs that he sourced from other artists that he knew. Well, now I feel bad for praising his songwriting because I thought the songwriting was pretty decent. I didn't like the lyrics, but the like songwriting is more than that. You know, it's structure and melody and all that. I wouldn't criticize the songwriting, though, just because that's a testament to how strong the spec writing talent in Nashville in the 90s was. Yeah, that's um, true. You know, that's he was a true. spec writer just like them. And I guarantee you, I don't know this, this is all speculation, but I guarantee you those were all his buddies who were out there grinding and writing spec songs and he knew them and they were, you know, probably jamming in a back room and he was like, oh, I like that. I'm going to buy that from you. Yeah, so, yeah. In a I way, can imagine that going on. In a way, it's still a great validation for all those guys' work. Yeah, that's true. It it is a mark in the favor, and you know that's that's something I notice about country music is even if I don't like the lyrical content, there is very much a focus on songwriting that gets to the point and is also entertaining. Mm-hmm. And that is definitely something I would say about this album is that, that you know, nobody's wasting my time and mm-hmm. I'm not sitting through any half-baked songs. These are all songs that like as individual little pieces work really well. Mm-hmm. It just happens to maybe not be my bag. And that's totally fair. And that's one reason that I really love this new Amazon feature that I'm bringing into this review section, which is all based on user reviews. And that's the star rating from Amazon on this album. This album has a four and a half overall uh, out of five stars, as everybody's familiar with the Amazon thing. And you've got to take that with a grain of sand because the only people who are going to review something are probably people who enjoy it or really, really hate it. Yeah. So. 81% of the reviews on this album are five stars, 10% are four stars, and the rest are less than that, of course. So 91% of this is a four star or greater. The reviews that were one and two stars, there's a feature on Amazon that shows you what country they originate, the review originated from. All of the one and two stars originated in the UK. So we can throw out their trash opinion because they lost (laughs) the war and we're here to talk. I I just wonder... (laughs) Who who is sitting in their flat in London like, I'm going to write a bad review about this this country album that I hate so much. Like, why why is that a priority? Exactly. Just go listen to the Rolling Stones. Exactly. Or the Beatles or whoever. You too think they're British at the moment. So let's go. (laughs) Well, that's really Uh, all I have for reviews on this. Um, Unfortunately, in 1994, the internet wasn't such a big thing. And most of the early 90s country music magazines and whatever are defunct. So I couldn't really pull any serious reviews of this album other than what we've already talked through. Uh, With that said, I'm really interested in hearing what your review is for this album, Chris.
Okay, just to remind everybody, our ratings, uh, our rating scale is one to six strings. So one string being just the absolute bottom of the barrel, an album that we hated, and six strings being just the pinnacle of musical artistic expression. So, uh, well, my experience with this album was, as the internet likes to put it, meh. Um, we've kind of talked about my feelings on it already, but I don't think it would be fair to characterize this album as bad. I don't want my rating. I don't want anybody to misconstrue my rating as a value judgment on the quality of the music. Uh, because as we've talked about, Joe Diffie doesn't take himself too seriously. That's like one of the seven deadly sins of music, I would say, is to take yourself way too seriously. The music isn't sloppy. These are all, I imagine, Nashville professionals. And like I mentioned earlier, the songs are basically competent. No, none of this is slipshod. It's all very well done. Um, but there were no moments of this album that really stuck out to me um you know i would say the most uh the most impact that this album had on me was thinking that the kind of twist at the beginning of when the cows come home uh was kind of funny and that i don't know that i really liked the guitar playing in love with the capital u uh, all the things that I could think of immediately to say about it were just things that I felt were kind of second rate. Like the ballads are too cheesy. Uh, the honky tonk tunes, while they're pretty capable, are just kind of run of the mill, which that's an opinion I think I might need to reevaluate just because his intent was I'm going to turn this up to 10 and see how country I can get, you know. Um, and then the last thing that we already went over, Joe Diffie's punchlines just aren't funny to me, you know, and that is a thing that is a difference in my sense of humor. I don't know that I feel like, oh, it's just bad. No, I just think that it's not for me. Um, so I'm going to have to give it two out of six strings, which makes me sound like I hated the album. I didn't hate it, but you know, if you don't connect with something, you just don't connect and it's not for you. And I wouldn't want to pad my rating or inflate it any more than I would want to give it an unfairly low rating. So I'm going to have to give it two out of six strings for me personally. Well, I think that's entirely fair from your perspective. Um, I'm going to just start my review by saying last week when this album came up on our random number generator, the Oracle, as we've come to call it. I was really excited about this album. Um, when I look back at my original list, this was literally the seventh album that I put on the list. So it was early on in my thinking of what albums do I want to talk about? It was at the top of my head. And there's a lot of reasons why I was compelled to put it on that list, personally speaking. I don't think we talked about earlier. My earliest memory of this album was shortly after we moved to Texas, uh, we moved to San Antonio and my grandparents lived in Brownfield, Texas, about 400 miles away from us. And I remember my parents in a station wagon 
driving us to the halfway point to meet my grandparents and trade, you know, the kids basically at the halfway point in San Angelo at a little Mexican restaurant called Mejor Que Nada. And somewhere about Eden or Menard or maybe Mason, one of those little towns along the way, my dad went into a gas station and came out with a cassette tape of this album. And we ended up listening to it and repeating it, you know, flipping the tape back over and repeating it again uh, on the drive because the songs were catchy. And I was six years old at the time. That means my younger brother was five. And then my youngest brother was like three. So this was an album that like immediately got all three of our attention and kind of shut us up and we enjoyed it. And our dad kind of enjoyed it. And so it was fun. And I remember having a great time with this album because of that. And over the years, it kind of became a a road trip tradition to to play Third Rock from the Sun. And it's one of those albums that it had been a couple of years since I'd listened to. But the, when I listened to it last week for the first time in a couple of years, it was right back in it. And I can remember, you know, numerous road, road trips over the years where all three of my brothers are in the backseat of whatever car we were driving from San Antonio back to Reno or wherever, belting every line, every word, of every song to this album. So it's, it's a really treasured memory and it's not, it's not that this album is in itself a great album. I think I've tried to be fair to it this week. Um, but we've mentioned in this podcast that some of the albums that are on the list aren't on the list because they're objectively great albums. They're albums that mean a lot to us personally. And that's, what's so great about this project between you and me is we can share the music that has meant something to us over the years. Uh, Nowadays, I have a fairly good relationship with both of my brothers, but I think back to the time when we had a great relationship, like we were really close at those times in the back of whatever station wagon or pickup truck or uh, homeschool van that we were in at the time, and it was a shared joy that we had. Um, I love that this album kind of makes fun of country music because my parents really like country music in a lot of ways. And so even at an early age, it was obvious that this album was just playing on all the stereotypes and having fun. And, you know, one of the biggest hits in country music in the last 10 years is a song about getting your dog back because you're playing a country song backwards. Well, this is that country song playing forwards in a lot of cases. <laughs> um, so all of that said, and all of the the comments on my personal feelings towards it, and the reason that I feel that this is one of my favorites, I'm going to go ahead and give this thing six out of six strings. And it's not because it's a perfect album. I freely and readily admit it. But anytime I hear the the opening tune for Third Rock from the song, from the Sun start, I'm going to sing every line of it in time. And then the second that song ends... I'm going to start singing the next song on this album, regardless of if it plays or not, because I know this album like the back of my hand. So I'm going to sing it with Reckless Abandon and call it six out of six, no matter what. Hi, Marks. You know, I think that is a testament to the, like, just the subjectiveness with which all of us come to music, because this was a thing that did not connect for me at all and connected on a perfect level with you. 
and we're listening to the same music and coming away from it with completely different opinions. That's but we're what still makes friends. This kind of yeah. And that's what makes this project so much fun. Like, all right, yeah. we can disagree, but I'm still going to love you at the end of the day. And if this is the last episode, sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah, off pod, we'll talk about that. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, but all joking aside, I do have to know, since you had much more critical reviews of this, what was your favorite song and what was your least favorite? So the song that kept playing in my head the most this week was I'm in love with a capital U. Uh, That was one of the songs where all his attempts at humor got me real good. Uh, He said, he talks about trying to learn math and it just doesn't add up, which I identify with because I am garbage at math. Um, I think the chorus is really hilarious just because of you know good being spelled g-u-d and you know the title of the song i'm in love with a capital u um it's just fun it's like the way it that is a song where his attempt to be the fun country artist and and make the fun side of country music appealing that worked for me uh the chorus is hilarious one of my favorite lines is in that song, and it's every time the teacher said pi r squared, all I could think about was going to uh-huh. lunch. Yes, <laughs> that was funny. That song got me. And also, I already mentioned it, but man, the whoever's playing pedal steel on that is just slang. It is so good. And I didn't realize it was pedal steel until he does this. He does a really crazy lick that has the sound of like he's changing strings and hitting levers. He's going at like a million miles an hour. And so you can hear kind of that. It's not just somebody on an electric guitar. And so that was for sure my favorite song in this album. Well, for me, I really like all of the upper fun songs. So I'm a huge fan of uh, Pickup Man. Uh, I I do have to wonder, though, like, what is country music's hatred for Cadillac Coupe de Ville's? I know. He, um, he mentions that in this album several times. Just him, let well, alone all him, other country Him, let musicians. alone all other 90s country artists talk about, you know, the, the guy who stole your wife is driving a Coupe de Ville. And so, um, but I love all the, the high note songs. I think the one that does it the most for me is probably a tie between Third Rock from the Sun, just because... I love how fast the lyrics are and I love how Mm -hmm. that story unfolds. Uh, The chorus repeats, but every verse is so different and it's telling a story that's just fun to me. Um, I also really like pickup man. I know you weren't a fan of juniors in love, but that's a song that I think is a lot of fun in a lot of ways Uh, just because of Mm -hmm. the imagery of like, you know, owning he's, he's sitting in his pickup truck in a drive through with the transmission leaking oil all over the place. And he's got, you know, some crappy old chase lounge in the back seat. So he could watch the movie like imagery like that just really kind of connects with me. Cause it seems like the kind of thing I wish I would have done when I was younger. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can see that. I can see it. So with that said, you know, the, the high note songs, the fun songs are the ones I like. Um, My real complaint with this album would just kind of be how, uh, to use your words from the show notes, just overly saccharine kind of fake sweet the ballads are. 
And mm-hmm. that's that's where this album kind of drags a little bit. And there are a couple of the ballads that I like. Like, I enjoy So Help Me Girl. Uh, yeah. I enjoy yeah. a couple of them, but most of them just, eh, okay, whatever. So yeah. what was your least favorite song? Yeah, so my least favorite, I would have to say, um, is probably uh, Juniors in Love. I, I just didn't. I know, like I said, and I, I don't want to belabor the point, but just I didn't care for the lyrics. I, his imagery was pretty good. I will say that. Like, he is a good storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, but that one just was a miss for me. Um, mm-hmm. As much as I complained about the ballads, for whatever reason, they didn't bother me as much as they did as that song did. So that would have <laughs> to be mine as Juniors in Love. Let me ask you a question. If Bob Dylan had released this album, how would you feel about it? Because the imagery has got a lot of parallels to Bob Dylan imagery. Yeah, he he does. The imagery is equally as vivid, but it's definitely put together in kind of a more obvious package. So I don't know. It's kind of hard to say. I think, I think if we had had some like Dylan howling over some like, <laughs> strumming acoustic guitar and some uh some harmonica maybe i would like juniors in love i don't know but i also didn't like his super country-ish songs either true so i don't know i don't know it would be interesting maybe i can uh maybe i can do a a a cover album where i try and approximate bob dylan doing (laughs) joe diffie and see how many people enjoy that Well, Chris, I think it's safe to say the cows have come home and we are done with Joe Diffie's third rock from the sun. You ready to figure out what we're going to listen to next week? Absolutely. Let's consult the Oracle. All right. So we're picking from your list this week and here we go. The Oracle came back with the number 12, Chris, which for you is 2011's City and Color, Little Hell. Ah, more mopey sad music. I tell you what, if you don't like falsetto, you're not going to like this. Really? (laughs) Well, no, it's not not falsetto necessarily. He sings from his head voice. I'm curious uh, what you're going to think of this because there, there is more instrumentally in common with country music uh, as far as this album goes. There's some pedal steel, some acoustics, some twangy guitars. So it'll be interesting to see what you think of it. I, I will be excited to hear your take on it. Well, I'm excited to give it a listen this week and see what I think about it too. Folks, thank you so much for listening to our podcast this week. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please rate it and review it, and we might even read your reviews on another episode. Absolutely, and if you want to get in touch with us, shoot us an email at twodudesandtunes at gmail.com. That's all spelled out, no spaces, no nothing. And don't forget to hit us up on Instagram or Facebook. We're fairly active. I try and pay attention. It gives me something to do when I should be working. Uh, Tell us what you thought of third rock from the sun and don't forget to tune in next wednesday where we talk about dallas green's canadian laments we'll see you guys wednesday